Bereshis. It does deal with something in Parshas Bereshis, but it also deals with something that's in this week's Parsha as well. So, it connects with Bereshis as well as with Parshas Vayeshev. Um, there's a very interesting medrash on this week's Parsha. And in a certain sense, one can say that it's almost like a window that gives us a little bit of a view on what's going on in heaven. And we could learn a lesson from this for everything about life in general. This week's Parsha has a lot of things going on in it, Parsha Tzvayeshev. Yosef gets sold, he gets sent down to Egypt. <coughs> Ruvain tries to save him, doesn't work. Yehuda has his own uh, problems as well. He winds up going in disfavor with the rest of the family. And he leaves the family for a while. He has children that died on him. His children died. Um, he has a certain ugly incident, if you will, with his daughter-in-law where he... Um, where he assumes his daughter-in-law is a prostitute and uh, he has relations with her and he then fathers his own um, grandchildren, I guess you could say in a certain way and um, then we find later on Yosef is thrown into prison in Egypt he has a certain incident with Aishas Potifera, the wife of Potiphar he tries, she tries to seduce him. As a result, he winds up in prison. A lot of things are going on in the Parsha. Comes the Medrash, and it tells us the following cryptic statement. It says, It was at that time. At what time? It says the Medrash in the upper right corner. Rab Shmuel Nachman Posach. Rab Shmuel Nachman opens with the following statement. God knows all thoughts. The tribes, the brothers, were involved in the sale of Yosef. They're doing something very bad. The Yosef Yosef was in mourning. He's being thrown away. He's being sent away from his family. He's going to go on an odyssey where he doesn't know where the end is going to be. He's in a state of depression. He's being sent down to Egypt. He's being, being sent down into his personal exile. In a sense, one can say he's the first Jew to go into exile. Whereas Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov were forefathers, Yosef is the first of the Shiftei Kor, the first of the, um, of the next generation, of the tribes. And he's being sent off into exile. So he's sitting in mourning in his ashes and in his fasting. Ruvain hoya osuk b'sako b'taniso. Ruvain at the same time was also likewise involved in um, mourning, sitting in ashes and, and in sackcloth and fasting for double reason. Number one, because he felt somewhat guilty and responsible for the fact that Yosef, that Yosef was sold and he didn't prevent it. But more importantly, because of an incident that occurred in last week's Pasha where Yosef had uh, some sort of uh, dealing with Billah exactly what happened over there Ruvain, yeah, Ruvain with Villa and um, as a result of that sin he was in disfavor with his father the Yaakov Yaakov was likewise 
involved in sitting in mourning and wearing sackcloth and ashes. Why? Because he lost his son, Yosef, and he mourned that terribly. That was his favorite. At that time, Yehuda went. He went off and he left the family, as we said. He married a woman. He produced children. The children died. And he also had an ugly incident. All of this depression was going on. Times were pretty bad. It was like all the indicators were down. There was nothing good happening by the Jewish people at that time. All the indicators were down. What was God doing in heaven? God was involved at that moment in creating the light of the ultimate redemption of Mashiach. At that time when Yehuda went down, and everything was on a downward cycle, it was a spiraling downward cycle. The term, Tochil, Yolda, before the first exile came about, in other words, before the, before the first Pharaoh that enslaved the Jews was born, God already was creating the light of the Mashiach, who was going to be the ultimate redemption at the end of all the exiles. That's what the Medrash says, a very profound Medrash. How in the midst of all of this dejection and depression and recession and whatever else is going on, what was happening in heaven, a little window is open to us over here, it tells us that in heaven they were creating the light of Mashiach. Very unusual medrash. <clears throat> Let's go back now to something that happened in Bereshus, at the end of Parshas Bereshus. And um, this happens to be something which is quite important in understanding how Hashem operates the world. We find at the end of Bereshus, and we skipped all, last week we talked about the uh, creation of woman, we're skipping everything in between that to the end of Parshas Bereshus. Okay, so this is the end. Bayar Hashem ki Adam. On the bottom it says, Hashem saw that the evil of man was very great in the earth. All of the thoughts of man were to do evil all day long. He saw man was, became totally corrupt. God regretted the fact that He created man. And He felt bad in His heart at the creation of man. Very strange Pasuk. Hashem regretted the creation of man and He felt bad that He, that he made man. And Hashem said, let me wipe man off the face of the earth. Let me bring a devastation over man to totally obliterate him from the earth. Everybody. Because I changed my mind. I regret the fact that I created man. This obviously leads to the most obvious of questions. How could that be? God is regretting it, he's repenting the creation of man, he's changing his mind, he decided it was a mistake. God is owning up to a mistake. He's saying it was a mistake that I made man, let me reverse the cycle. So this is a Weltskasha, right? This is a question that, that everybody asks, and that we, we have this question, it echoes through, throughout 
throughout history, people ask this question at all times. And the most simple answer, and the most obvious answer, also echoes throughout time. And therefore, let's learn the easiest and most simple of answers on this simplest yet most profound of questions. The answer is likewise simple and profound at the same time. It's in Rashi. Rashi's over here. Let's read Rashi. First Rashi says, he, God felt bad and he mourned the necessity to destroy mankind. I wrote this down. To refute the claims of a certain apikoros, a denier. He asked Rabishu ben Korcha the following question. Omar Lay. Don't you people believe that God knows the future? Omar Lohain, of course we believe that. Omar Lo, in that case, that Hashem felt depressed over the fact that he had to change his mind and as a result destroy mankind? Doesn't that imply that God did not realize beforehand and that's why he now feels bad? So Rabbi ben Korcha, in true Jewish tradition, answers this question with another question. Omar Loni tells him, Have you ever had a male child born to you? Or do you ever have a son? Don't ask why not a female. Omar Lohain, he's speaking to a Napikara son. Omar Lohain, he says, yes, I had a son. Omar Lohain, so what did you do when you had a son? Omar Lohain, I rejoiced, I made a great banquet, and I had everybody rejoice together with me. Omar tells him, Didn't you realize that this son that you're bringing into the world is being brought into the world for a finite period of time, and he's going to eventually die, he's going to get old, he's going to get sick, and he's going to die, and who knows how happy his life is going to be. What? He'll be lucky if he He'll be lucky, exactly. Who knows how much source the child that you're bringing into the world is actually going to have? So what are you so joyous about? Don't you realize it? Forget about God. Don't you realize it? You know, we're talking about, doesn't God know the future? We know the future. We know that every child we bring into the world is born to die. We all know that. Don't you realize that? Omar Los, he says to him, you're right. But life can't go on any other way. At a time of rejoicing, be happy. At a time of mourning, mourn. It's a Pasuk in Kohelis that says a very similar concept. When God shines goodness on you, rejoice, be happy. Don't worry, it's going to end and God is rewarding you, things are good, be happy with it even though you know the good times are going to stop. I mean, economic cycles, everybody knows there are downs and there are ups. We all know that. And the day of evil, God made both. God made punishment. God made think bad things happen as well as good things happen. Rejoice when it's there, and when it's not there, realize that there's a purpose for that as well. That's what he answered him. He answered him, yes, I have a child, and I know that there's going to be a time for mourning. But now is a time of joy. Bishas chedvisa, chedvisa, bishas evlo, evlo. 
Omar Lawless, he said the same thing. Who says God is going to be doing it any different? This is the way God deals with the world. Even though God knows that the, they are destined to sin and they will be destroyed, that's not a reason to not create man. Because there is an ultimate purpose to everything. And there are going to be good people that come from it. There is an ultimate redemption of mankind and an ultimate salvation. Therefore, God made the world and He said, I'm going to commiserate with you. When you're happy, I'm happy. When you're sad, I'm sad. And I'm going to follow suit. Is the simplest yet most profound answer of all. But it's the, it's the most obvious one. Yes, God knows the future, but we also know the future. And we live with the present. We don't live with the future, and we can't live with the past. What's the Evan Ezra's word on that? It's um, a very nice little... Uh, um, the future is yet, the past is gone, and the present goes like that. Like an Aisha. Yes? Uh, let, let's, let's, let's retranslate the word Vayinochem. The word regret in English means some, something slightly different. Vayinochem means now God is taking an about face, so to speak. But that's a present feeling. It's not that God said, I should never have created man. It's I regret man's existence now. Regret is maybe the wrong word to use. It's just that's the way they translate it in English always. It means that God is making an about face. Now it's time to destroy man. And now there's a, uh, there's, there's a person who's worthy of salvation. And yes, something may happen in the future. But life goes on and you go through the cycles. And at each stage of the game, we have the principle of Basher Husham. God judges man according to what he is at that time. We cannot mix everything because then life becomes so futile. Life becomes so meaningless that we no longer... The whole Kohelis is full of this. The whole Kohelis is based on the principle, it starts off, Havel Havol Mamar Kohelis. Everything is vanity. Life is futile. There is no purpose to anything. Because all joy is ultimately negated by death. There is no such thing as joy that lasts. And if you go through the whole Kohelis, Ecclesiastes, what does he discuss? This joy, that joy, but it's all stupid, it's all foolish, it's all vanity. Everything is vanity. And the truth of the matter is if people try to be so logical, then they wind up never moving off a square, uh, off of the first square. Because if they keep saying, what's the point of this, what's the point of that? If life becomes so pointless, we do nothing. The truth of the matter is, the question is asked, isn't Kohelis anti-Jewish? Isn't Kohelis <laughs> anti-Jewish? Because the whole idea of trying to knock everything, which is really what he does, the whole Kohelis says, so I thought maybe wealth is good. I saw that that's nothing. I thought maybe having uh, wine, women, and song is great. I saw that's nothing. Oh. So the conclusion of Kohelis, and this is a very important point, and that's what a person has to realize, that Kohelis was speaking to the Goyim like a guy. He was saying that if I want to be logical about everything, this is the ultimate logic of everything. Futility. The ultimate logic of life is death and futility, vanity. Nothing is worth doing. That's what he's saying, and it's depressing. Life is very depressing if you're a non-believer. If you're a non-believer, life becomes very depressing unless you stop to think, until to not think, you don't want to think. 
But anybody that's a thinking human being is going to be extremely depressed. Therefore, he ends off, Saif davar hakol nishma elokim the end of everything is fear God because this is what injects meaning into everything else. It injects meaning into the joys and the frustrations of man. And therefore there is nothing that's meaningless. The truth is, Kohelis concludes just the opposite with the rest of the whole thrust of Kohelis. Kohelis talks that everything is futile, everything is foolishness, everything is vanity. And he ends up saying nothing is foolishness, nothing is vanity. Because everything has significance and everything has meaning, if you believe. If you believe that nothing is without value, nothing is meaningless, everything has some purpose. But you're going to try being logical and say, what's the point of joy? That's why we read Kohelas on Sukkot, Zman Sim Chosein, at a time of joy. It's at the end of the year. It's when we're gathering in all of our, all of our things and we're getting ready for the winter. So what are you rejoicing about? Tomorrow the snows are going to come and it's going to, the earth is going to be turned cold and everything is going to die. But it's going to be a new cycle. That's all foolish. Life goes on. Life, death, life, death. It's all foolish, this whole cycle. Everything is foolish and Kohelis goes to prove throughout the whole Kohelis how everything is foolish. And he was the greatest of kings and the wealthiest. And he says, I know. I know that the whole world out there is shtus. Everything out there is vanity. Everything out there is foolish. It's all futile. But what I can say is, self dovor hakol nishma. Then nothing is futile. Then everything has value. That's why he ends off not on a negative note, but on a positive note. It's only negative if you don't believe. If you deny, then life is very negative. If you believe, then everything has a purpose. Doesn't Bayinachem also mean comfort? Is that yes. He had to co- that's, Rashi starts off saying that he had to <coughs> say Avelis. Same Shorish. And maybe that's really turns about. The, the bad feelings and the consolation go together. The, the Dubna Magid says, you know, famous mission in, in Brachas, Kishem Shemavorchen Alatov Kach Mavorchen Alhara. The same way that the person is supposed to give a blessing for good things that happen, you have to bless God even when bad things happen. So he says, the Gamzul Tovah principle, yes. Hazorim bedima berina yiksaru, those that, that plant with tears will reap with joy. That's what we say in the Shira Malos, which is talking about the ultimate redemption. Shira Malos, b'shuvah Hashem ha'shiva ha'sion ho'inu k'chom, when the Jews go back and Golos is over and everything comes back together, that's where it says, Hazor Bedima, those that cried in the planting are going to reap with joy. And the Dubna Magad gives the following uh, marshal. He says, let's say you go over to, um, to a uh, tailor and you give him this most expensive silken garments and you tell him, you know what, I want you to make it into a royal robe. So what does he do? He makes lines, he draws diagrams, and then he starts cutting it and if you walk in on the middle of, of what he's doing, he's like, yeah, I'm going to mishugna, what did you do? I gave you this expensive, you know, cloth, and you're ripping it to pieces, you're ripping it to shreds. <coughs> the other day, I walk outside in my backyard, and I go, what's going on over here? They're destroying my steps, they knocked it all down, I can't walk up steps, they knocked over this, and the concrete was pulled up, everything, and the thing is a turmoil. If you walk into the middle of something, it looks pretty bad. It's the finished product. It's a Yiddish expression. 
also mevash neshtana hal ba'avet. Like he confesses, how does a person plant something? To plant something, you would take a perfectly good seed, you have to first dig out the ground and mess it up, turn it over, put the seed and wait till the seed degenerates. The seed has like die and degenerate, it doesn't really die. What it does is it degenerates um, to, to germinate and then outsprouts life. Anything of value usually has a point beforehand, as they say, it's darkest before dawn, but it's where there's a certain deterioration of sorts. If you walk in the middle, then you're going to see, now what happens, says the Dubna Magad, the guy that starts yelling at the guy, what are you doing to my cloth? If you yell loud enough, you'll scare the tailor away, you'll run away, you'll leave it half finished. Then it's hack bad. God does things that are good for us. Sometimes we can perceive the goodness. When times are good, we see it. When times are not good, he's also doing something that's beneficial for us. It's good for us. We are just in the middle and we don't see it. If you accept it with joy, with simcha, then God will finish the job and you'll finally have royal clothing. But you complain too much in the middle, so God will say, okay, okay, I'll leave it. And then you're left with bad. You'll never see the good because he'll never finish it. Don't complain when things are bad because you haven't seen the end yet. You have to wait till it's all over. You have to wait. Take a look at this Yosef. What is the Medrash telling us? Look what's going on over there. Everybody's in mourning. Yeah. What does it say over there by, um, in, in Pashas by Yeshav also? Let me put that down over here. Just put down the last half of it. It says that Vayomelo um, Yaakov sends Yosef off on a mission and tell me what's going on. So it says, He sent him from the valley of Hebron to go to Shechem. says, Rashi, Hebron was not on a valley, it was on a mountain. What does Me'emek mean? So he says, to fulfill the deep thoughts of God that he told Avram, your children are going to go into exile. This mission of Yosef was a mission that was going to lead to the first exile, to fulfill the pledge that Hashem told Avram, your children are going to be enslaved for 400 years, then they're going to become a nation, then they're going to come out to, re to receive the Torah. It was a necessary prerequisite to build a Jewish people that they had to first go through the cauldron of Egypt in order to purify them and to change, to turn them into a nation where they'll come out and they'll be able to get the Torah. So it says, What does Yosef say? Finally, 20 years later, when he meets the brothers and when the story is finally over, he tells them in Vayigash, uh, and that I have over here on the top left, this this thing that you sent me, that, that my father sent me off, and I met an angel on the way. It says that he met a certain man, and he says, where are my brothers? It was the angel, Gabriel, saying, they're that way, right? The angel had to steer him. Why was the angel doing all this? It says Yosef, now that it's over, what do we see? God sent me. Why? so that you should be able to survive in the land 
and to support you in Egypt, because this is where you, you need support. So he says, and now, you're not the ones that sent me, hang over here, because God is the one that sent me. Yosef is saying, yes, I was sent. So what Hashem was doing over here when everybody was mourning, Hashem was preparing the way for a salvation of a magnitude which we couldn't even imagine. It was a salvation, first of all, for the family, because during the famine they were there. It was a salvation for Egypt. Egypt wasn't hungry. Yosef, with this whole story, saved Egypt and all the surrounding countries from a terrible calamity, from a terrible catastrophe. And he saved the Jewish people, and they set up shop in a manner which they'll be able to survive. Come through the cauldron of Egypt, and come out of Egypt, that they're going to come out, and they're going to be able to accept and receive the Torah and become a nation for all eternity. That's what God was doing when everybody was in mourning. Then it tells us a little bit beyond that. God was doing more than just that. He was not only setting into motion the wheels of history for the Jewish people to become a people, but he was also, send, uh, he was also uh, setting in motion the wheels for the ultimate redemption at the end of all exiles with Mashiach. That we'll still have to get to what that means. So the principle that we have over here is that human beings, being short-sighted as they are, have to realize that you can't stop God in mid-motion and say, what are you doing over here? You're chopping things up. Because it's in the middle. It just hasn't finished yet. But we also know a principle that a person has to take things the way they're given. You rejoice at a time of rejoicing. And you can't make too many cheshbonas. You can't make too many calculations. And those that make too many calculations always get burnt. Also in Bereshis, we find an interesting uh, parallel to this. And let's go through a few of these parallels as well. We have one story over there with Lemach. Lemach was seven generations after Adam Arishon. And it says that Lemach married two women. And there's a very strange episode over there. It doesn't really fully explain as to um, Lemach. Yeah. <coughs> He's the first one that seemed to marry two wives. took two wives. And they had kids. They only had the minimal amount of kids, it says. And he tells Lemach to, uh, to his wives, listen to me, yeah, what did I do wrong? And what's going on with Lemach dialoguing with his wives? So Rashi says, Tup Shotten. I'll just say one shot that Rashi says, based on the Medrash. According to this Medrash, it says that the wives of Lemech separated from him. After they had the minimal amount of children that's necessary to fulfill the mitzvah, they separated. After they fulfilled Puru. Why? Because they knew They knew that there's going to be a flood coming and that the seed of Cain, which they are from, is going to be wiped out and obliterated. Amru, they therefore said, Ma What's the point in giving birth for vanity, for, for, for something which is, the children are going to die, like we talked about before. 
Lamochor Hamabu Bobashoitiv is a call. Tomorrow the Mabul is gonna come and it's gonna wipe out everybody. To which he says that whatever see see set a whole calculation over here. Then immediately it says in the next passage, Vayeda Odam Odas Ishtova Taylor then Vatikrash Moshes. Kishosli Elokim Zera Achir Tachas Hevel. So what's the next passage have to do with it? Says the Medush, Lemach was beside himself. His wife separated and he couldn't convince them to come back to him. So Lemach goes to Odom Arishon and he starts complaining to Odom Arishon about his wife. He says, hey, my wives, they, they, they just left me and they don't want to uh, have kids anymore. So Odom Arishon says, you know, Lemach is right. So he goes over to the wives, his great-grandchildren, and he says, is it your business to worry about what's going to be the future? Atem asu You do your responsibility and you go back to kids. Let God worry about his problems and you worry about your problems. Same thing they told Kiskiyahu. Yes, we're going to get to that. Right. So, but these wives of Lemech were no slouches. What did they do? Omrullah, they told Adam. Kishot atzmechotchilo. You know, you, it's easy for you to give us Musr. Why don't you fix yourself up first? Adamarishan was also pretty depressed. Adamarishan planned on living forever. He thought he was the only one that actually had kids, thinking maybe they will never die. But he sinned. And as a result of his sin, he brought death into the world to all of his future generations. As a result, he separated from his wife. He didn't have any more kids. After Cain and Hevel, because he sinned, and he saw that he brought death into the world, he didn't have any more kids. So he's giving Musr to the wives of Lemach that you got to have kids. So they said, fix yourself up first. 130 years you separated from your wife. It says, Miyad Vayeda Odomes Ishto Ma'u Od. What does it mean, Od a second time? That he had even a greater desire now than he ever had before. And he now had kids. So he had to fix himself up first as well. Again, the same theme is mentioned. That the tendency that people make to calculate and to figure out, should I or shouldn't I, to worry about the future, you don't know what God has in store for you. You do your job, let Hashem worry about doing His job. Life doesn't last forever. You rejoice when you rejoice. So in that case, make what you're supposed to do today Adam was the only one that, I guess maybe that's why he thought he was different than, than, than the wives of Lamech. He says, as far as you're concerned, you were born into the world that's going to die anyway, so why shouldn't you have kids? He himself felt that, I brought death to the world, I can't have more kids. They told him, no, you also have to go with the same, with the same approach. You also have to have the right attitude. Adam accepted the Musr, and he had kids. The truth is, the child that he had, Chase, was the only survivor. And that's really where the, the, it says over there also about Mashiach coming from Shays. Again, this is already the first glimmerings of the ultimate redemption as well. Let's take another story. The story of of Lot and his daughters. Let's read through some of the psukim over there. After the destruction of Sodom, Salot escapes. He escapes into the mountains with his two daughters. 
Kiyore lo Shevis Bitsar, he's afraid to live in Tsar, he's afraid that they're going to be have destruction there as well. Vayeshev Bamoro Hushtev, and also they lived in the cave with his two daughters. Vatomer Habachiro El Hatsiira, the older one says to the younger one, Avinu Zokain, our father is old, the Ish Ein Boaz Lovolenu Kedera Kolaaretz, they thought that um, they were the sole survivors of a global holocaust. I mean, can you imagine, when you go down to Sodom, when you, in the Yama Melech, you see how barren the landscape over there is. You know how bad things look over there. They thought this is the way the whole world looks, and we're the only survivors. That's the way the whole world looks. Well, it makes sense, because of the Babur, they Because they, they had a precedent that it happened once before, so they thought that they were the only survivors of a desolate planet. That's what they thought. So they said, there's nobody around. We're the only survivors. Apparently, they had wine with them. Let us live with our fathers and produce seed from our fathers. Says the Medrash on the words, It doesn't say, let us produce sons, ben or bonim, children. Seed. Says the Medrash, what kind of seed? Also, Zera Shubomi Mokamacher, the Ezer, Zer Melacha Mashiach. Let's produce Mashiach. That's what the Medrash says was going on behind the scenes over here. We have to understand what, what, what this means. Again, we haven't fully explained how Mashiach fits into this whole picture. So it says over there that they gave him wine. The older one then lived with her father. The next night, the younger one lived with her father. They both became pregnant. And it ends off, they both became pregnant, impregnated by their father. That's how Moab and Ammon came into existence. Small little interlude in the story of the Chumash, and then it resumes the narrative back to the story of Avram. Who really cares about Moab and Ammon? They weren't even Jewish nations. Well, we all know that who came from Moab? Rus. Rus came from Moab. We also know that, that the line of Rus, how she had relations with Boaz, was also in, a, not in an ignoble manner. We also know that on the other line, we have Yehuda and Tomar, as we just talked about before, that Yehuda and Tomar had relations with his daughter-in-law, and it says Hashem was now creating the light of Mashiach. Here again, we have these two strands coming together. On the mother's side, on the Rus' side, we have the story of Moab, of Lot and his daughters, with an incestuous relationship, where the Medrash says, what kind of seed? The seed of Mashiach. That's what was going on from the Moab line. We see that happen by, later on with the Rus and Boaz. On the father's side, we see Yehuda having relations with his daughter-in-law, in a, again, in a very ignoble manner. And later on, we find the story repeated again with David and Bathsheba. That David and Bathsheba had relations also in a very um, ignoble manner. And from that, finally, the two strands all came together. And that's what the Medrash says. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was being Isaac. While everybody else was doing all these nasty, terrible things, and everything was down, God was sowing the light of Mashiach. Why is it that from this story we have Mashiach come from this? 
that loads daughters with this incestuous relationship produce Mashiach, what merit really do they have to produce this? So I saw someone saying the name of Rabbi Salavechik, based on the very... Yes, oh. That's also a valid point. I mean, when you contrast uh, the idea of immaculate conception for the Christian Messiah to the Jewish idea of Mashiach, we see a very interesting, um, you know, uh, distinction. Also, as, you know, this, by the way, is another indication of how, of the divinity of the Torah. Because Jews, being as careful as they are about their yichus and their pedigree, mm. to say that Mashiach and Dovra Melech comes from all of this nasty going around, that's something which anybody that would have had an opportunity to blot out, you know, any censor would have easily just ripped this part out. Jews don't touch the Torah. This goes back to the beginning. Whatever is there remains. And nobody would have made such a statement and invented it on their own. Because no one would say that Dovra Melch came from such a union. And that Mashiach comes from... No one would have said such a thing. It's only something that was only there because it's true. And because we are very careful in maintaining the truth. But to invent this all, no one would have invented such a thing. He says like this, the Medr says that the two daughters of Lot really had a certain debate whether they should go through this process. Not because they were breaking the uh, incest taboo, which in itself is a, is a very terrible thing, but because whether it's worth it. Look around the landscape. You have this global holocaust, and the world looks pretty bleak. It looks pretty lousy. I mean, you know, it looks pretty bad even today, but you can imagine what it looked like after the destruction of Sodom and Amor when you had all of the ash and everything floating around and there's no life over there and everything is salt and sulfur and terrible and their own mother was lost they're in a pretty depressed state said the older one to the younger one we got to do something with this descendants of adam we got god gave a promise that there's going to be humanity the older one said take a look what happens each there's what we call the law of holocausts there's always going to be there's always going to be cycles of destruction adam tried it he was unsuccessful. God obliterated it. Noah tried it a second time to bring a rebirth to mankind. <clears throat> Didn't get anywhere. Take a look what happened. The world is destroyed. Even Abraham. Nothing, nothing worked. We're the sole survivors. So what are we going to do? We're going to have children. What's the point? What's going to happen if we have children? There will be another Holocaust occurring and they're going to be destroyed again. So what's the point in making such an effort and breaking a taboo of incest to bring children into such a world they would also have incest yeah yeah, yeah. And maybe they'd only have girls well maybe only boys yeah maybe but they said should we make the attempt right the point is they had a lot of reasons to say let's not bother making the attempt at reviving humanity is humanity worth reviving everything is vanity anyway it's all foolishness life ends with death anyway it's all futility it showed that they had an ultimate faith in humanity and an optimism which said, no, we got to try again. God gave us a promise <laughs> that we were made, man is made in God's image and there is some ultimate hope held out for us. Let's try it again. And her argument won out. The argument of having an ultimate faith in humanity's redemption and in humanity's salvation, that's what Mashiach is all about. When we say that we have 13 principles of faith, one of them is Mashiach. And we talked about it once in the morning. Why is Mashiach so important to have a principle of faith about Mashiach? What's Mashiach all about? 
You mean, we wouldn't have to keep the Torah without Mashiach? The other principles we understand, reward and punishment, belief in God, belief in God knowing all of our actions, those are obviously necessary philosophical underpinnings to Judaism. But where does Mashiach come into being a philosophical underpinning of Judaism? That's the Chassam Sofer's question. Chassam Sofer says it shouldn't really be one of the Yud The answer is that Mashiach is a psychological underpinning to Judaism. It tells us what we really believe, that we have this persistence and faith in the ultimate goodness of the purpose of creation and in the redemption and salvation of mankind. That's what faith in Mashiach is. Precisely when things are at their lowest ebb, the daughters of Lot said, let's still have this, retain this optimism. But they could have made all the, there's one other calculation which, which, which the, they say, they were both virgins at the time and they couldn't really become pregnant from one time anyway, so they weren't sure if they'd even become pregnant. And as you said, maybe they'd only have girls, not boys, and, and who said, how were they going to survive? The landscape was, was bleak anyway. There's a lot of reasons why they shouldn't have kids, but they decided to make the attempt. It seems that it only works in one direction. A person is allowed to have an ultimate optimism, an optimistic faith in the ultimate good of man goes into the Gemara and Brachas that says, Have faith that everything will turn out good, and that there is an ultimate good to everything. That optimism you're permitted to have. To make the calculations, to give it all up, which is a certain logic to it, which is what Kohelos tells us. Kohelos tells us that there's a very, very, you know, ironclad logic to giving up about life. It's only sof dover hakol nishma. It's only the belief and faith in God that injects meaning into everything that we do. And that's why on Sukkot, although winter is coming, but we can still rejoice now because our joy is meaningful. And really the sadness is also meaningful. Everything that we do is meaningful, but the meaning is only there because of God and because of the purpose of the, of the world, not for any other reason. Because if you remove God from the equation, then life becomes futile. If you deny God, then life is almost valueless in terms of worth living. It's only, the only thing that makes it not Hevel is Sof Dovar HaKol Nishma So that's why perhaps the daughters of Lot were worthy of producing Mashiach because of this ultimate optimism that they had, which goes back to Odom Rishon, when the daughters of Lemech told him Musa and said, what about you? How come you separated from your wife? He says, you know what, you're right. I'll give birth to children. That's the child that survived the flood and survived all the future holocausts. Because all of them realized, we have to switch gears. I don't only have to have children that will live forever. I can have children that will not live forever. They're also worth having. The truth of the matter is, we don't know what's good and what's bad for us. The Vilna Gaon, I once quoted this before, wrote in his letter to his daughters, L'mochor tivke me'asher hayom tishak. L'mochor tishak me'asher hayom tivke. Tomorrow you will cry over all the things that today you thought were going to be good for you and you rejoiced for. Tomorrow you're going to laugh at all the things that you thought were bad. The one that got away, you know, that's, then you find out that's the one with the salmonella in it. Or, you know, the ones that you think that you got, and this is going to be the cause of my greatest joy, turns around. The ones that you think are, for, are going to cause you tsars, 
they're the ones that you have the most nachas from, and they're the ones that are the most successful. You don't know what's good and what's bad for you. That's part of the message. But also to have this, this, this optimism, so it's really like a threefold message. On the one hand, we don't know what's good for us. That's number one. We don't know what's good for us. It could be turned around. The second point, of course, is let's live with what we have today and not make so many calculations. And the third thing is let's realize that whatever Hashem does will ultimately come for benefit. But you see, with this, we could really understand something that we talked about, I think we talked about all last Friday, but the whole idea of Yaakov going back for the Pachim Ketanim, for the small jugs and going into battle. There is nothing that's really small and insignificant. Everything has value once you realize Sof Dovar HaKol Nishma. If you don't believe in God, then Havil Havom HaKol Havil, everything is Havil. If you believe in God, then there's no Pachim Ketanim even. Let's take a couple of other stories now that follow on this pattern. And we could just see how this theme recurs throughout history. The truth is, you know, maybe we have a very interesting modern parallel to this idea. Nobody knows how should we view the Gulf victory. The truth of the matter is, the victory in the Gulf, we don't know. There may be problems that will still come out of all of this. We don't know. Everybody was so happy. And then all of a sudden everybody's now depressed. The territories A redemption is still a redemption. The fact that it's incomplete. Purim was also incomplete. Purim was incomplete. Say that in forty-eight with the state of Exactly. They do say that. It's a, it, in fact, it's the correct approach about Israel. How to view the whole thing? It's incomplete in forty-eight. Israel is still incomplete. Yeah. But it's still rejoiced. I mean, it was. No, the Purim story says Hashta Abdi Achashverosh. After the Purim story, they were still under subjugation to Achashverosh. The Hanukkah story. The Hanukkah story was what? Was it complete? They found this one jug of oil and they cleansed the base of Migdash, but the victories weren't complete yet. They still had 20 more years of war. And during that period of time, one after another of the Maccabee brothers died. One after the other, they died. Ultimately, even when they finally redeemed all of Israel, they were free till when? Till they brought about their own destruction. They themselves brought about their own destruction. Well, it, not only the Hellenists, what happened was the Hashminoim themselves got involved in bickering. They had no business becoming kings because they were Kohanim. And then uh, two generations later, they got into a civil war. As a result of the civil war, they brought the Romans in to arbitrate the civil war. And you know how the Romans do it, the plague on both your houses, and we take over. And the Chazir got its claws into the walls of Yerushalayim, and it, and it trembled. So who brought about the ultimate downfall of the Jews? They themselves did. The Chashmanoim did. So what does that mean? Does that negate the victory of Hanukkah and the celebration of Hanukkah? No. Biyom chedvisa chedvisa. Take the Gulf victory for what it was worth as being something. It's not the end. But what, what is history? History is nothing more than a bunch of lost opportunities anyway. There was many missed opportunities throughout history. Whether it was Purim, whether it's the Gulf War, whether it's Hanukkah, or whether it's the story of Chizkiah. Let's go through a little bit the story of Chizkiah. But that's really 
a recurrent theme how history is replete with lost opportunities nevertheless it doesn't negate it's not the ultimate but it's still worth something sometimes even the seeds of future problems and future catastrophes are sold by what we consider to be victories and it still doesn't negate the victory I think it's an important principle to realize that even if the seed of ultimate catastrophe comes, it should not allow you to have this Havel Havolim complex where you negate everything that happened before. We all know the story of uh, Chizkiyo and Sancherev. Chizkiyo lived about 150 years before the destruction of, um, of the first Beis Amigdash. He was the king of Judea. In his time, the Syrian Empire was in ascendancy and they conquered the land of Israel and they exiled the ten tribes. They did not conquer Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, they attempted to conquer Jerusalem, but Hashem made the miracle that on the first night of Pesach, an angel came and smote the camp of the Assyrians and 185,000 Syrian, Assyrian, not Syrian, Assyrian soldiers were wiped out in one night. He had faith in Hashem. But what you have over there is, um, you have a whole story over there about how that all occurred. I'll leave it to you, Hashem, right, yeah. But there's a couple of other interesting things that occurred during that same time and with that same war, which most people are not familiar with. One of them is, the Gemara discusses, were there any survivors in the Assyrian army? And the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, there were about nine survivors. Fourteen survivors, according to some five survivors. Question as to how many survived. Big deal. Out of 185,000 dead soldiers, we could be generous and allow a few survivors. One of the survivors was a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Another one was a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the general for Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed Jerusalem later on. Chronologically, I don't know how it fits in, so well, don't ask so me that question. I just said, don't ask me the question. I don't know how chronologically it fits in. That's what the Gemara says. I don't know what that means. It may have been apparent that the right one was named after. Yeah. yeah. However you want to learn. I, I can't answer that question. Seeds of destruction. But the seeds of destruction already were contained in that victory. Right? In the victory of Sancherev, that that was considered a tremendous victory on par with anything that ever happened to the Jews to the point of where there was a question that Chizkiah could have been Mashiach he blew his opportunity again another example of a blown opportunity he could have been Mashiach and Sancher would have been Gogu Mogog and that could have been the ultimate redemption whatever that means that's something that has to be understood in itself but the seeds for the future catastrophe and destruction of the Jewish people were already sown but it's even more <coughs> profound than this. Why? The Gemara tells us, not the Gemara, but it's already it really implicit in, in the Novi itself, that um, at the time when this was occurring, it says Chizkiah got sick. Chizkiah was sick to the point of death. Now many of you are familiar with this part of the story because we've discussed this on other occasions as well. That the reason why Chizkiah got sick was why? Why did Chizkiah get sick? Because he didn't want to, he didn't want to have children. He didn't want to have children, right? You knew that. You yeah. said it earlier. But I told you this morning, told me so. Yeah. He didn't want to have any children. 
he knew that he's going to have a child who was going to be no good. And he was right. He had a child that was no good. In yeah. fact, his child was so terrible, he undid everything that Chizki ever did as, uh, for, as a positive achievement. He negated it all and he, and he messed things up much worse. He was, his son Menashe was king for 52 years who killed Yeshaya, his own grandfather. Because what happened was, well, okay, let's go through the story. Comes, comes Yeshaya Hanavi to Chizki one day and he tells him, Chizkiah, you're going to die. This is all, by the way, occurring at the same time that Sanacherev was coming to besiege Jerusalem. The Assyrians were coming. Comes Yishai and tells Chizkiah, you are going to die. Make out your last will and testament because... He says, why? Because you don't have any kids. So he said, okay, let me do tshuva on it and everything else. He says, you can't do tshuva. So there's two things that are going on over here. First of all, he says, the reason why I don't want to have any kids is because I know I'm going to have evil kids and I don't want to have evil kids. I'd rather have no children than bad kids. Comes Yeshaya Novi and tells him the same principle that we've said. Bahadi Kavshi Yours is not to worry from a God's perspective. You don't have to go into heaven and view things from a God's eye view of the world. you got to do what you got to do. And let God take care of His department. You do your work, let Him do His work. Don't play God. Your mitzvah is to have kids. Have kids. Don't worry whether they're going to turn out good or not. At that point, he said, I'll do tshuva. And he said, you know what? Maybe if I marry your daughter, then the merit of me, who was a big tzaddik, is a righteous person, as well as the daughter of Yeshaya, Hanavi, will produce good kids. Well, sure enough, it didn't work. He had a son. His son became wicked, very wicked. And Menashe is the one that really killed Yeshaya Hanavi later on. It's his own grandfather he killed He's a pretty horrible kid, you know. He wasn't such a... Well, we have to be careful how we speak about Menashe. There's a Gemara, but it's not so simple. You have to be careful how you speak about these people. We also have over there where Chizkiah tells Musa to Yeshaya. He says, too late. God's not going to forgive you. So Yeshaya said, I have a tradition from my father's house, from Dovna Melech, that no matter how bleak the situation is, you could still do tshuva. Again, this is a tradition going down from David. No matter how down things are, there's still an ultimate hope. That's the message that reverberated through history from David al who apparently learned it from all that happened to his life and his ancestors, etc. Chizkiah said, let's not give up hope. Fine. So again, we see the same theme and the same message and the same lesson. But then the Torah goes on and says the following. And this is a very interesting incident. At this time, while this is occurring with Sancherev, Chizkiah asked for a sign, for some miracle to happen, that everything's going to work out okay. So God told Yeshaya, tell Chizkiah, yeah, you got yourself a miracle. The sun's going to go back 10 degrees. And sure enough, the sun turned back. Miracle. Bo'es hahi, at that time, in other words, after all of these events, Sholach Merodach Baladun Ben Baladun Melech Bovel Sforim Umincha Chizkiah Vayishma Kicholo Vayechazar He heard that Chizkiah was sick He got well He saw this miracle happening in the heavens He asked around what's going on What caused this miracle to happen So he found out what the great victory That happened to the Jews How Chizkiah was sick and he became well And the sign happened He said wow what a wonderful What a wonderful person 
And it's interesting, the Gemara tells us that at that time Nebuchadnezzar became a scribe for this Baladun ben Baladun. That was his name. The reason why he was called that was he looked like a dog. He was a dog-faced person. He was king of Babylon. And as the scribe, Nebuchadnezzar said that you have to first write you have to first write God's name before because he sent them a letter saying peace unto Chizkia, peace unto Jerusalem, peace to the great God of the Jews. So Nebuchadnezzar said that's not the proper etiquette. If you call him a great God, you got to put his name first. So he ran after the messenger to stop him. And he took four steps or three steps to get to the messenger. At that point, the angel stopped him. It says that had the angel not have stopped him, Nebuchadnezzar would have been so powerful for doing this good deed that at the same time the Jews were sinking and Nebuchadnezzar was doing this great thing, he would have been able to destroy all the Jews totally. So he had to stop him in mid-track from being too good. In any case, that's just an aside. So they sent him a message with a present. Chizkiah sees it. Vayismach he becomes happy. Vayarim, he shows him his household and he takes him to his treasure houses. This is the Babylonian emissaries. The gold, the silver, the spices, the oils, and all of his utensils and vessels, everything that was in his storehouses, <coughs> there was nothing that Chizkiah did not show them. He showed them everything. Is that good diplomacy? That's what it says. Chizkiah, he showed him everything in his house. He took him on a tour of the empire, where he showed him everything that was going on in his house, as well as or everything. He showed him everything. Next day, comes Yeshayah Anovi with the following message to Chizkiah. He says, who are these guys that came? Where did they come from? Chizkiah says, ah, they came from a far off land. This is Babylon. This is a new, new young upstart empire. And they came to visit me from Bobo. He says, what did they see? Chizkiah says, I showed them everything. I showed him my, all my treasure stores. Listen to the words of the Lord. Days are coming. They're going to empty out your house. Everything that you have in it. And all the storehouses. You have to remember he had a lot of booty and plunder from the Assyrian soldiers that died. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, he took all their booty and plunder, and he brought them into storehouses. Now these guys are coming from Babylon, he says, take a look at my great victory, this and that. He shows them all the wealth of all the plunder that he got from the Assyrians. Says Yeshaya, you think it's over? Days are coming, and everything that you have today, and all that your, that your forefathers before you and ancestors stored, all of that's going to go to Babylon. Nothing is going to remain, Omar Hashem. Furthermore, your kids, from the children that you're going to have, they're going to go into captivity, and they will become the um, they will become servants in the king's house in Bavel. He's predicting the future calamity of the destruction of the first temple and the end of the Judean empire. Pella, what's going on over here? So what does Chizki respond? Vayomer Chizki or Yeshaya, Chizki tells Yeshaya, Tov dvar Hashem ma'asher dibata. Oh, it's good what you said. Vayomer ki yashom v'emes biyomai. Things sound like it's going to be good now. 
I mean, so it's going to be off into the future. At least things are good right now. Strange response. This is the end of the chapter. And all of a sudden, a whole new section of Yeshaya starts after this. The story of Chizkiah is really, I mean, this is a mind-boggling story, what's happening over here. You have over here how Hashem tells Chizkiah, he gets sick, he gets well, and he doesn't want to have a destruction, so he's not going to have kids. He's going to make the calculation not have kids. In Divrei Ayomim, it says that because of his gaiva, at taking all this credit and showing the Babylonians around, and as you said, it wasn't such good diplomacy either. He himself sowed the seeds of the ultimate destruction. When he blew being Mashiach, he not only blew being Mashiach, but he already laid down the seeds for the destruction of the Jewish people. And it was already happening at the time of the victory of the Assyria over the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar survived that battle. To come back another day and fight another battle, and that battle the Jews lost. It was down into the future. Yes, on the one hand, Chizkiah learned his lesson. And he said, okay, as long as it's not happening now, I'm not worried about it. He seemed to have switched gears at this point and said, you know what? I'm not going to worry about the future. I'm going to worry about today. The Malbim law explains, what, what, what was the great sin of what he did? So he said, the truth is, the sin of what Chizkiah did wrong was Hashem made this miracle. 185,000 soldiers wiped out in the night. He sends the sun back 10 degrees when Chizkiah is sick. Was that a miracle for Chizkiah himself? Or was that supposed to be a miracle to awaken fear and trepidation throughout the world at what God is doing for the Jewish people? Comes Babylon, the young upstart empire, and they want to visit Israel, and they want to see what's going on, what's so special, what makes this country tick? How come this little tiny country holds off a vast empire like Assyria. You, you have to, you know, you go through the story over there, the Assyrian empire was like, was like a ramrod, it was like a bulldozer. They went through country after country and they annihilated everybody. They got to the gates of Yerushalayim after going through ten tribes and bulldozing through ten tribes and they see, and Samcher gets up and says, ha, this is Yerushalayim? This puny little city over here, I'm worried about it? Eh. Tomorrow we'll take them like, like a piece of cake. It's going to be a cakewalk. And that night they get wiped out. Well, a tiny country was left over there. Yushalayim was small. There wasn't much over there. And all of a sudden God performs this tremendous victory. That's enough to set the whole world into turmoil. What's going on that little tiny Israel's able to conquer seven countries that are surrounding it? How could they do it? You know what the mistake is? When the emissaries come and you start showing them your tanks and your Merkovas and your weapons and your this and your that, oh, that's what it was. It was good strategy, it was good this, it was good diplomacy, it was good soldiers. It was God that did it. That's what Chizkiah should have answered. Chizkiah, obviously miracles happened to him, so he wasn't able to say that I did it. But he did say, yeah, it's on account of me. I'm a great king, I'm a great tzaddik. At that point, the Babylonians said, you know, when this old man goes, and we have his kids to deal with, we could deal with his kids somewhat differently. He, he blew an opportunity. An opportunity was there to say, God protects the Jews, stay away, be afraid. And maybe they would have been afraid. And then it would have been good diplomacy. But by Chizkiah ingratiating himself with the kings of Babylon and with the Babylonian Empire and trying to bring them in and trying to say, hey, 
maybe this is what it's all about. So then they started saying, yeah. Chizki started taking credit for his great righteousness and feeling that he deserved all these miracles and the sun went back. They wanted to find out why the sun's going back. What's that a sign of? Chizki should have said it's a sign of God's protection of the Jewish people. Instead, he goes around giving them a tour of all of his plants and all of the tanks and all. That's the modern parallel. We have opportunities also. Had the Jewish people after the 48 war, after the Six Day War, made the right moves, we wouldn't be faced with the Tsars that we're faced with today. It doesn't mean that the victories weren't victories. Chizkiyot's victory over Sancherov was a victory. But it could have been so much more. It doesn't mean you should mourn it. It doesn't mean you should negate it. It's still something wonderful. But it could have been so much more. It could have been the end. Instead, it wasn't the end. Why? Because you blew it. We blew it in 48. We blew it in 67. Chizkiyot blew it then. The Maccabees blew it also. In Parm they blew it. It happened throughout. It doesn't take away from the greatness of the miracle that happened, but we had an opportunity for so much more which we let slip through our fingers. So it's interesting how Chizkiyot was at a total loss for the true picture. On the one hand, he thought, I'm not going to have kids, and that's going to stave off the, the, the problems. You yourself are the cause. Don't look at your kids. If I don't have kids and I make the right moves, there won't be a destruction. Things that you can work on today are going to cause the destruction. Your gaiva, your, your, your haughtiness, and you're taking credit for what you don't deserve, that's what's going to cause the destruction. For taking them on a tour and letting them see and, and covet and become envious and say, hey, this is a country we've got to deal with later on. Right? You can imagine when they came back to Babylon and they said, you know, we saw some interesting things there. It's a country to keep, to keep our eyes open where the opportunity arises. Whammo, let's go in there. That's a mistake. Chizkiah blew that opportunity. So he thought he was going to be smart and outsmart God and not have kids. That was the mistake. Don't outsmart God. But be smart in things you could do something about. It, give credit where credit is due. He sowed the own seeds of his own future catastrophe. That's what Chazal tells when they say that Nebuchadnezzar was one of the survivors of the story of Sancherev. Yes, 185,000 people were wiped out. But there's a few little seeds that remained, and those seeds grew into weeds that ultimately, uh, that ultimately destroyed the Jewish people. The truth is there's a whole other thing that I want to talk about in terms of Mashiach, which I'm just afraid that it's too late already, so maybe we better leave it. Um, I want to learn with you a Gemara about Mashiach that brings out this point about how to view Mashiach. Maybe we'll save it for the next time. Probably the next time is in two weeks. We'll finish it off then. One of the lessons of Hanukkah is similar to the lesson that we just said about Chizkiah. The same way that Chizkiah caused his own downfall as a result of having the seeds, the kernel of the future um, destruction was already in place in the time of Chizkiah and Sancherv. Likewise, the Hashmanoim made the mistake, firstly, of taking over the, the kingdom, of, of the kingship rather, because the, they were Kohanim and they were not permitted to be kings. And that was a mistake on their part, which the Ramban says was uh, caused the catastrophe on a personal level that the household of the Hashem was totally wiped out in, in the future. But beyond that, we find that, that the, like the Ramban says in the beginning of Parashas Vayishlach, 
Machzik Bosnay Kelov. In other words, don't step on a sleeping dog's tail. No one asked you to bring the Romans in. When the Chashmanoim um, asked the Romans to come in, in a sense, they sowed their own seeds of destruction. On the one hand, they got rid of the Greek masters, and they vanquished the Greeks, and whenever they had problems with what they considered to be local troubles that were going to be problematic for them, they figured that they could solve it by going to some distant foreign power, which was Rome. They didn't realize that ultimately Rome would rise and would become a wave and a flood that would engulf them. The same way that Chizkiyot didn't realize that this new young upstart power of Babylon is the one to fear. And in those days the greatest empire was Assyria. Chizkiyot thought that let's make friends with Babylon. And that was the mistake because Babylon came and swamped, uh, swamped um, Judea. Likewise it happened the same thing with the Hashemunoim. Here they vanquished the Greeks, the Hellenists, the, the Syrians, and later on they themselves brought the Romans in, in and that became their, the cause of their downfall. So we, uh, we could learn from this also not to make too many Cheshbonis as well, because the Cheshbonis that we are making, thinking are for our benefit, can be our ultimate downfall. L'mochor tivke me'asher hayom tishak, as the Goyen says. Tomorrow you will cry over the things that today you laughed about. Chizkiyos, too many calculations, as well as his gaiva, was really the seed of his own downfall, rather than what he thought would have been his downfall. We have really a threefold lesson here. In the first place, we don't know what is good and what is bad. When things look bad, they could really ultimately lead to our salvation. And the things that we consider good can be the reverse. The second lesson to learn from this is the Kishem Shemavorchen Alatov Kachlevorchen Alara. That what you consider to be bad, like the Dubna Maggit says, you're just watching something in the middle. But really, a person has to have faith that everything is going to be good. That ultimately Hashem has a plan for everything that's going to lead to uh, salvation, and all the things that we consider bad in themselves are also for our benefit. A third lesson, a corollary from this, is not to make too many calculations. Don't make too many cheshbonis, bahari kafshi, rachman, You have to do what you have to do and leave Hashem to take care of the rest. Let's not play God's game. Let's not try to be God. A fourth lesson is the lesson that we could learn from Kohelas, which is havil havolon, that if a person really wants to think about it, life is futile and it's all vain and we'll never get off a square one if we think like that. And the truth is, the logic is like that. What gives meaning to anything and to everything is Yeras Hashem. Amuna, a life of faith, gives a significance and a meaning to everything in life. Life without faith, without any Amuna, turns everything into Havel Havolin, into vanity. A fifth lesson that we see from this is what we said in the very beginning. Biyom Chedvisa, Chedvisa, Biyom Evla, Evla. Or as it says in Kohelos as well, Biyom Tova Betov. When good is shining on you, accept it for what it is. Let's not, let's not allow the celebration to be soured by what's going to happen in the future. And in that sense, Chizkiyo was correct. He didn't make that calculation. It was a true calculation. I, I have to mention the the Malbum's Vort. 
the Malbim also points out, so, so what did Chizki actually say to the, um, the Shai? He says, oh, as long as in my days it's going to be good, what I got to worry about the future? What Chizki was saying was a very profound statement. And that's something which we've learned on a number of occasions. Namely, that Hashem's promises for good never go back. Hashem's promises for evil can go back. So when Chizkiya heard from Yeshaya that you have nothing to worry about now, but the bad things that are going to happen are saved and they're going to be staved off for a future generation, so Chizkiya said, that's gewaltig. That means I could rely on Hashem's promise that in my days everything will be good. And I know Hashem will never renege that promise. But Hashem never reneges a good promise. So therefore I can be confident that in my lifetime everything will be fine. So I'm happy for that. And he was right. As far as the prophecy that in the future your children are going to be, are going to be taken off into exile, so to that Chizkiya said, no, you got plenty of time till that future comes. By then we could try to do tshuva, maybe things will work out, and Hashem will, will uh, stave his wrath, and he will, uh, and he will stop, and he won't, he won't fulfill the, the promise and the prophecy for, for destruction and for, for evil. So Chizkiyah was correct in that also, because we do know that a promise for the good, a prophecy for the good is never reneged, whereas prophecies for evil can be turned back by tshuva. So therefore a person has to realize that let's not worry about the future, and let's take things as they are today. And a sixth lesson, and perhaps the most important, is the fact that a person has to feel a certain sense of optimism, and a certain faith in the fact that there is something that's good that's going to come out of everything. And that no matter how down things are, maintain your optimism and make the attempt to do as much as you possibly can to make things good, to right things, although it seems futile to do it, it seems that we're down and it seems nothing will come out of it, but in the greatest depths, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is creating the light of Mashiach. When everybody's down, when everybody's depressed, when all the indicators are pointing in one direction, Hashem's indicator is always pointing in the positive direction. So we should realize that and take a lesson from the page of the Benal Slot to do whatever we can to make things work out for the best possible, no matter how bleak the situation is.